And Mary knew what was happening because she's always at Jesus' feet. Imagine having a heart like that. So if you want to open up and be with us and hang out with us through the scriptures tonight, we're in John chapter 12, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. But this puts us just a little bit beyond the halfway point uh, in the Gospel of John. Now what's interesting about that is we have nearly half of the book left, and as you'll see, we're a week away from the crucifixion. So nearly the entire second half of the Gospel of John is dedicated to the final week, the Passion Week, and then what happens after the resurrection of Jesus' life. That's 33 years, 33 and a half years, um, but the vast majority of what's covered in the Gospels is that last week because that is the most important. That's the crux of the faith. And it's similar in all of the other Gospels, but what we have tonight is about a week before Jesus enters into Jerusalem. This is the final two weeks of Jesus' life. Uh, about a week before he enters into Jerusalem for the Passover, he's having dinner with some friends. Sort of an innocuous, just not that abnormal thing. But it's recorded and John tells us why he records everything towards the end of his book. He says he records these things so that you might believe in Christ. And so these 11 verses and this story of this dinner is important. It's also recorded in Matthew chapters 26 and Mark chapter 14. Uh, and we get some insight from those that we don't get in John. But this dinner is important. Now I think of dinner and just having dinner with friends it's interesting. We don't think too much about it. We don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about the depths of what eating a meal is like. But how often do you eat meals with people you're not close to? Almost never. Because eating food and sharing a meal is a pretty intimate setting. The only time I can think about having a meal with someone I don't know very much is on a date when I'm trying to get to know them. That's, you know, Julia and I started out that way, having dinner together, getting to know each other. So it's an intimate thing. You have meals together with your friends and family, people you care closely about. And so we're going to dig into a few of the different relationships that exist within this setting. So let's dig in chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. So you already get a glimpse into what's going on. It says, Jesus is having dinner. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are there. Lazarus has recently been raised from the dead. Martha is serving, which is not uncharacteristic of her. 
and Mary is at Jesus' feet, which is not uncharacteristic of her. It looks a whole lot like the picture from Luke chapter 10 from long before Lazarus was resurrected at a dinner they had had previously. But there are some key things that are different. One, they're not at Lazarus' house. Now, John doesn't tell us this, but the account in Mark and Matthew both tell us that they are at a house of a man called Simon the leper, um, which is not a name I'd really want to be notified for and want people to know me as. But I think he clung to it as a point of pride because he's not having people over at his house because he's still a leper. He's having people because he couldn't, according to Jewish law. He has people over to his house because he's been healed from his leprosy, which means this is probably one of the stories in the Gospels of the lepers that Jesus cleansed, and now they're at his house for dinner. And so you look at who's there, and you can tell that there's at least 17 people there just from the first three verses and the other accounts in the Gospels. So you know they're at Simon's house, Simon the leper. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are there. Jesus is there and his 12 disciples. And just imagine the kind of stories that go around that dinner table. You have a man who was healed from leprosy, who's now able to have these people in his home that he couldn't before because he's been healed. And it's because of Jesus. And if that wasn't cool enough, you can have Lazarus who can one-up him and say, well, you might have been cleansed from leprosy, but I was dead like a few days ago. <laughs> And now I'm eating your lamb. <laughs> and this is the environment. Now here's what's unique. In Luke 10, which we talked about a few weeks ago, Martha's still serving. But she's not complaining this time. Now back long before she had experienced everything like the resurrection of her brother Lazarus, when she was serving Jesus and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, she was upset and she went to Jesus and complained and said, will you tell her to help me? Can you believe all this work I'm doing? And she's just sitting there. And Jesus' response to Martha was, Mary's chosen what's better. She's decided to spend time with the teacher. That's a good thing. Don't dislike her for that. But now what we see Mary doing, or Martha doing is she's serving but she's not complaining. This isn't a bad thing. Martha serving and being someone who's gifted in hospitality is not a bad thing. It's actually a really good thing, but now she's doing it out of worship rather than duty because she's enjoying the experience. You can tell because she's not even at her own house and she's doing it. She's part of the service team because that's who she is. And there's a lot of different personalities. Lazarus is there. Now, do you know that nowhere in Scripture do we have any words from Lazarus? We never hear anything he has to say. But he's an incredible witness of who Jesus is and who his power is. And we're going to see that tonight. And you have Mary. Mary, who can't do anything but just sit at Jesus' feet and soak up his teaching. And we're going to see what that led to tonight. And Martha. And the point of all of this is there's a lot of different personalities. Peter's there, who I'm sure can't keep his mouth shut because that's who he is. Martha is serving because that's her personality. She's wired that way. 
And what a beautiful thing to worship in the way you were created to worship. Now, I'm not someone who has the gift of hospitality, so I don't understand Martha all that well. But I am so thankful for those who do. People who can make others feel welcome and take care of them and make you feel like you have a home here. You ever walk into someone's house who has the gift of hospitality? It's completely different. You walk into my house, and I have no idea what to tell you. I'm not good at offering people anything because... I just don't think about it. It's not my deal. I don't have that in me. I'm not an entertainer. I'm not someone who likes to have parties and, and have people over because I just I don't know what to do. I'm not wired to think that way. But when you go to someone's house who is, it almost feels like an extension of your own home. And if you look at this picture, you're sitting around the table Mary's at Jesus' feet, completely comfortable, even at someone else's house. And Martha is serving, even at someone else's house. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to worship the way you were wired to do it. I would say and encourage all of you to think, you know, as we start moving forward and we have opportunities to do more things and to be there for others and to serve this community and to do ministry, how are you wired? What is the best way for you to worship and create some service to be a part of the ministry. What do you do best? I would encourage you to think about that because Martha, she's doing what she does best, but she's doing it out of worship. You can tell because she's not complaining now. And it says, Mary, who's not just at Jesus' feet, she grabs a very costly oil of spikenard. So like a bottle of this scented perfume often used uh, to anoint people for burial. What's amazing is her brother recently died. Lazarus is there. He's alive and well, sitting at the table eating dinner with people. But if this perfume would have been used to anoint people for burial, it wasn't, at least not all of it was used on Lazarus, if any. That's how valuable this was to Mary but she pours it on Jesus. And what we see in the other Gospels is she anoints Jesus' head as well as his feet. And she cleans Jesus' feet with her hair because she's just worshiping deeply at the feet of Jesus. What a picture. And the heart of who these people are are coming out. Who they are in their nature and what their time with Jesus has meant to them is coming out. And not in every circumstance does that turn out to be a good thing. Because the very next verse tells us this. One of his disciples, one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. So now we see someone who hasn't been changed in the way that the others have. Now everyone else here is sitting around a dinner table, eating with Jesus as they get closer to the Passover, enjoying his time. Mary 
is weeping and anointing Jesus with the most prized possession that she had. 300 denarii is what you would earn for a year's wage as a skilled laborer. That's a whole year's wage. Now, the average wage in America is, I think, $70,000 for a person. But let's maybe not be that generous and say, even if this perfume was worth $10,000, I don't think I'd be pouring it out on somebody else. But Mary does. She didn't even use it on her brother, who recently died, but she puts it on Jesus' feet because she is crying out in worship to him. And Judas says, couldn't we have sold that and used the money for the ministry? But he didn't say that because he wanted to use the money for the ministry. He said it because he's thinking about what he can get from it. It gives us an insight into why G Judas followed Jesus. What can I get out of this situation? It's about me, not about him. I'm not he's not worshiping Jesus. He's using Jesus to worship himself. And he might be a disciple. He might be someone that the rest of the crowd looks at and says, he's following this rabbi. He must be one of the 12, one of the great ones. Oh, I can't wait to hear what Judas has to say. Judas even, in the past, had gone out with the other disciples, sent out two by two, and cast out demons. Judas did work for Jesus, but he wasn't changed on the inside. This is the difference between religion and relationship. A relationship with Jesus is what everybody else is experiencing. They've become different in the time they've spent with Jesus. Peter and Andrew and James and John have gone from fishermen, rugged, hanging out in the water, to being those who now have a heart for people because of their time spent with Jesus. Mary has become someone who's now willing to give up her most prized possession because she's in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Martha has gone from someone to using what her skills are and complaining that no one's helping her to now just seeing it as a form of worship and helping and serving others. But Judas is still looking at what's in it for me. He doesn't seem to care about Jesus, but what he can get out of it. So Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me, you do not always, have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew Jesus was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on the account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So what do we have going on here? And Jesus says something that's pretty profound. Now, for some reason, Jesus has mentioned that his death is coming. He has told his disciples over and over again, you can see in all the accounts of the Gospels, what's going to happen. He's telling them he's going to die. He's telling them he's going to be resurrected. He tells them what's going to happen. He even tells them pretty specifically, as they're on their way to Bethany in the other accounts, that he is going to get arrested and crucified. He's pretty explicit about what's going to go down. But the disciples just don't seem to understand. 
But Jesus says Mary does. What's interesting is later on, after the resurrection of Jesus, that Sunday morning when the women were headed to the tomb, they were going to anoint the body that was in the tomb. They brought the things along to anoint the body because they didn't have time to do it to prepare for his burial between the crucifixion and the burial. And so they're going on that Sunday morning after the Sabbath to finally anoint Jesus' buried body, but they find out that he's not there. So the only anointing Jesus received for his death was this, this moment right here. And Mary knew what was going on. Jesus said, Mary has been saving this to anoint me for my burial. He's saying she knows what's going on. Why is it that Mary knows what's going on and the disciples don't? It's an, it's an important question. Mary knows what's going on and the disciples don't because the disciples are always so active thinking about what they believe the Messiah is going to be. They're trying to plan and deal with the uprising and the revolution that Jesus is going to create. They're looking for the fight against the Roman army, and they're trying to make plans and figure out how everything Jesus says fits into this. But Mary, Mary's always at Jesus' feet. In Luke chapter 10, in the first dinner, Martha is scurrying around, and she's upset with Mary because Mary's not helping but Jesus said Mary chose what was better because Mary was at Jesus' feet. When Lazarus died, Martha came up to Jesus and yelled at him and told him, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And she got in Jesus' face and told him what he could have done better. And Jesus calmed her down and let her know that everything was going to be okay, that he is the resurrection and the life. And then he called for Mary. And when Mary came, what did she do? She bowed at Jesus' feet. Someone who bows at Jesus' feet is someone who is submitting to Jesus' authority, and they can't wait to hear what he has to say. And because she soaked up everything that Jesus had to say without her own agenda, she knew what was going on. And she was the one who was there to prepare Jesus for burial, because her heart was completely open to what the gospel really was, even before the crucifixion. And she was the one who gave up her most prized possession for Jesus' burial. Because Jesus' death is her life, just like it is for us. Jesus' death on the cross represents our eternal life, our new life granted through him through the resurrection, but he had to die first. And Mary knew what was happening because she's always at Jesus' Imagine having a heart like that. Every time you opened up the word or listened to a podcast or a sermon or every time you came to church or a Bible study, if we didn't have our own agendas, our own ideas of what we were going to put into things, but we're really just ready to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear what God had to say. That's what Mary did. And that's the heart I pray for. I want to be like her. Then in verses 9 and 11, it says, A great many of the Jews knew that Jesus was there, but they didn't come just for Jesus' sake, 
but that they might also see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So people had heard about Lazarus, and they're interested to see about this miracle that Jesus did. They knew he died, and now they're seeing Lazarus alive. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Now, even though we never hear anything that Lazarus has to say in the Gospels, we see this. Lazarus's change, Lazarus's experience with Jesus was so profound that they not only wanted to kill Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus too. Because Lazarus' Lazarus's existence gave Jesus' ministry and goal concrete evidence. It meant that Jesus is the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He is who he says he is. He is the resurrection and the life. And Jesus even tells us in other parts of the Gospels that the world will hate you because it has hated me first. And Lazarus is exactly that representation. Lazarus's resurrection, he was given life after death. He was given new life. That's what he represents, and that's what Jesus offers us. And if you experience new life and the change, are you at odds with the world who opposes Jesus? Because the world was out to destroy Lazarus, because Lazarus represents Jesus' power for a new life. But Lazarus, he's a follower of Jesus. He loved his enemies. That's what Jesus told us to do. And so here's a couple of points. One, how are you wired? Are you loud like Peter? Use it. Are you a servant and someone who loves to be hospitable? You love to make people feel welcome. Use that. Are you someone who's sort of introspective? Maybe a bit of an introvert. But you just love soaking in goodness? Sit at the feet of Jesus like Mary. How are you wired and how can you use that to benefit your relationship with Jesus and any ministry you want to be a part of? Second, new life, if experienced in Jesus, means that you should also experience some opposition in the world. Now, I think a lot of times we're really good at explaining why we should be opposed to the world. I think there's a lot of things in the world to be opposed to. I think the world's gotten pretty dark, and I think it's darker than it's ever been. There are things happening just here in our little county or town or state or country that are really gone off the rails and really oppose God's ideals. And it's easy to be opposed to it and to be anti-world 
And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be. But what are you offering in replacement? If you're opposed to the things of the world, what are you offering the world instead of? Because the world's looking for a purpose. The world is looking for something to cling to. Jesus offers you new life and a purpose and a story to be a part of. And the gospel and getting the gospel into people's ears and into their hearts so they can experience the new life is what I think we should be standing for. And it's not just about hating the practices of the world or not liking the practices of the world. Because we can see that the world is opposed to us. But we don't have to hate the individuals of the world. We should love them and give them the gospel in response. Because they're right. There is something wrong and broken with this world. What we have a difference of opinion on is the solution. The world is broken, the world is messed up, and the world does need to be cleaned up. And I think the answer to that is Jesus, is the gospel. And that's what we want to see spreading in our community, in our country, and in our world. So how are you wired? And how can you give the gospel in response to a world that hates it? Let's pray. While I pray, I'm going to invite Lindsay and Nate back up. God, thank you. Thank you for this story. I know it's a short piece of information, but John put it down for us so that we could believe in you. God, help us understand how to worship you properly, how to worship you like we're wired, and how to make a difference. God, help us to stand for you in a world opposed to you. Help us to learn how to give the gospel. God, I'm so thankful for what's coming next. God, thank you for these 11 verses that are put in here before your triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Thank you for showing us that you're tangible, that you're someone we can grasp and cling to and understand, that you want a relationship with us. You don't want us just to work to know you better, but you actually want to know us and to have a real relationship with us. So God, I pray, I pray that we can learn to love you and we can learn to love you in the way that we're wired to do so that we can put the skills and the passions of our heart to work for you to make a difference here for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.